Costs to originate keep rising, even with more technology in the industry. The problem is the core platform. A new LOS can re-architect the process around data, not humans moving paper files. Vesta has built this LOS, and you can learn more at Vesta.com. Welcome, everyone. My guest today is Managing Editor James Kleiman to talk about the FHFA's timeline for replacing the classic FICO credit score model and the latest on appraisal bias. First, here's a word from our sponsor. I'm Diego Sanchez, Chief Operating Officer of HW Media, and I'm here today with Melinda Wilner, who is the Chief Operating Officer at United Wholesale Mortgage. Melinda, so good to chat with you today. Great to chat with you as well. Thanks for having me. From your perspective, what role does technology play in creating top-notch customer experiences? Yeah, great question. Technology plays a huge role in it. Um, At UWM, we are always searching for the best technology for the borrower and for the broker both. So I think from a borrower perspective, things have changed a lot. I've been doing this uh, for over 20 some years. And I think back to my early days, there was a lot of in-person stuff. There was fax machines. There was early stuff. There's a lot of people dropping off documents. Like, how cool is it now that you can take a picture of a document with your phone and upload it? Like, e-signing your initial disclosures. How great is that? I don't have to go see anybody. Virtual closings. Amazing. Like, I don't even have to have anybody over my house anymore if I don't want to. So I think technology has given a lot of people in this very fast-moving world some options that make it very convenient for them and very, kind of the coolness factor too. Like, oh my gosh, I just closed a refinance all over some Zoom equivalent virtual thing. That's really cool to to be able to pass on. Melinda, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your insights. Thank you again for having me. Appreciate it. James, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, good to be back, Sarah. Good to be back and talking to you in what is another very busy news day. So one of the first uh, stories I wanted to talk about was one you wrote about the FHFA and FICO. What happened? So you you guys maybe remember that back in October, Sandra Thompson was at NBA Annual in Nashville, and she made a pretty significant announcement. She said, we are basically done with classic FICO. It's going to take some time. You know, we can't implement this in a week, you know, in a month, even in a year, right? It's going to take some time to do. Uh, but we are we are going to sunset the FICO Classic model, which they really had pretty much unchanged since 2014. And we are going to do two main things. The first is uh, we're going to go from a tri-merge to a bi-merge, right? So that's very, very important. And then the second is we're going to move to a new credit model, which is the FICO 10T and Vantage Score 4.0. And so this is all eventually going to get um, baked in a, you know, every element of Fannie and Freddie's underwriting and, and uh, you know, capital pricing, the, the whole the whole gamut. So it's, it's pretty significant. And now we have a, a more definitive timeline from the FHFA, which, uh, you know, doesn't exactly move at the at light speed. Uh, but they're, they're, I think they've been relatively quick on this. You know, we, we know that they've been wanting to do something uh, significant when it comes to credit modeling for years now, right? I mean, God, I think we talked about this, Aaron, like 2020. And, and so now we're here and, and, and it feels like it's, it's finally happening. So I, I think it's really encouraging. I know that a lot of people in the industry are pretty excited. Um, in doing this, they are going to be moving to, I think, really a more expansive idea of credit, right? Credit 
people have lots lots of bills, lots of payments. They're responsible for all kinds of things. It's not just your mortgage payment or your, you know, whatever, you know, it's rent, it's utilities, it's telecom bills. It's that there are a lot of tools out there that haven't been used in the classic FICO model. And we're going to be putting them into place now. And so, you know, hopefully that's going to open up for a lot of borrowers who frankly have, have you know, and we talk about this pretty often, but they've been shut out of the credit box. Absolutely. And so, you know, the timeline on, on this, right, is the first quarter of 2024 for the for the buy merge system. But to actually get to the new credit models, that's what, the first quarter of 2025? Yeah, so here's the timeline. So the FHFA is going to be gathering industry feedback in the second quarter of 2023. So that's going to be starting basically next week, right? And um, and they're they're going to solicit feedback. They're going to gather it. It's going to take them a little while to put it together, and they're going to begin to publish the classic FICO data to support their credit report update in the fourth quarter of 2023. Now that. Buy merge system from a tri merge system is going to take place in the first quarter of 2024. So that's again, that's a pretty significant change. Um, and then as we move forward, the FHA is going to start delivering and disclosing the FICO 10T and the Vantage Score 4.0 historical data into the credit model updates by the first quarter, or probably more likely in the first quarter of 2025. So we're already into 2025, right? And then by the end of 2025, the FHFA will have incorporated the full credit score model updates with FICO 10T and Vantage Score 4.0 into capital and pricing. And you know, the, the whole point of this, according to the FHFA, is they want to have more accurate credit modeling. They want to have more innovation. This is not uh, a, a product that has really meaningfully changed in a decade, right? And they, they just want more inclusion. And, and you know, the, the hope is that this is going to reduce some costs as well for borrowers. And, and the FHFA and, uh, you know, Fannie Mae in particular have been very vocal about the need to create a lot of efficiencies in an industry that is historically not known for, uh, you know, reducing costs for borrowers much. Well, and, you know, both FICO and Vantage Score have put out lots of different models, right? It, it was the... They have. Um, you know, FHFA's decision to stick with a, a pretty old model. I mean, there, there have been a lot of updates, a lot of things that they could have done. So it's encouraging to me that they've, you know, finally taken the step and we're going to see this even there, you know, that timeline can sound long, but if you're, you know, if you're, if you're moving the Titanic, if you're shifting it um, and the mortgage system is huge, you know, it does take time. Yeah. Iceberg right ahead, right? <laughs> I shouldn't say the Titanic. Hopefully not. <laughs> A, a large How about something. Lusitania. Large. Are there any other ships that uh, maybe maybe have a trick checkered history? I'm definitely not trying to say that. That's too funny. But yeah, I mean, we know, as you said, that the credit score is so um, is such a huge part of how people um, get access to the system or not. And you know, I I don't see at all that like oh the government's trying to be irresponsible here and throw open the credit box to anybody and everybody, you know, it, it doesn't seem like that at all. It just seems really like they're taking into account some of the, the ways that people pay for things that can now be tracked in a much more, um, you know, we can use AI, we can use automation to, to figure that out and, and generate a score. Yeah. And frankly, it's an absurdity that things like rent are already not included in credit. I mean, you know, for, for, <laughs> we have we have chatbots that can now write a new programming language in 20 minutes, and you can't figure out how to figure out how rent 
you know, will, will affect <laughs> rental history payments would, would affect, you know, uh, someone's credit worthiness. I mean, that that's ridiculous. We, we've just, we, we, we have not innovated enough in, in mortgage and, and especially in underwriting. And, um, this is a big step forward. It's not, it's, it's not going to create an equal playing field by any stretch, but it is going to get more, give more opportunity to people that have, I think, wrong, wrongly been shut out just due to government's, you know, slowness. Just, yeah. That's right. I, I especially think about people like yourself who live in New York City or some of the other giant urban centers where like you have, you have a decade of a rental history that should be counted. Um, that's not, I have two, two girls and two of my daughters in New York City. And it's like, you know, becoming a homeowner there is, is a whole different thing. So, you know, a lot of people are going to have more rental history and that should count. Right. I mean, I, mommy and daddy didn't leave me $2 million to, to buy an apartment in New York City, which by the way, wouldn't, wouldn't buy you as much as you might think, you know, might put, get you like a nice one bedroom somewhere in Manhattan, but it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it, it's ridiculous. And, and we are moving more toward demographically speaking, an urban model, right? People are still, pe- people are not deciding to descend on, you know, any town USA in the middle of nowhere. There, there were certainly some changes, you know, related to COVID in, in terms of migration, but the cities are absolutely still where people rent. And, and the reason they rent is because land prices are expensive. They can't buy. And that doesn't mean that they're not credit worthy because they were shut out of a, a market that requires a down payment of $400,000. I mean, that's, <laughs> it's crazy. You know, like we, we have all these legacy systems and institutions that just haven't caught up with the realities and the challenges of, of prospective modern borrowers. And that's, that's a shortcoming. And it's, it's good to see that the FHFA and, and the GSEs are trying to address some of it, but it should have been done a decade ago. Like, why are we talking about this now? I totally agree with that. I mean, I've been at HousingWire almost 10 years now, and we were talking about this 10 years ago, I promise you. And FICO was coming out with new models and, you know, Vantage Score, you know, came along at some some point in there too. And it was like, I, I don't understand why, why we're still doing this. So this is welcome news. Um, great to have a timeline in place because that was such a, a big revelation at MBA Annual. And then to see the follow-up is great. And I, I should caution everyone, this is a proposed timeline. This is not set in stone. There's no guarantee that, you know, that the full cake is baked by the end of 2025. It is very possible, I dare say, even likely that there's a delay. There are always going to be complications when you're trying to model credit histories for tens of millions of people and blending historic historical data with, you know, the, the real time issues that people face is, is always going to be a painstaking process and there are going to have to be a lot of revisions. So, um, I, I don't want people to get their hopes up too much that, that this is, you know, fully going to happen by the end of 2025. Yeah. Don't get your hopes up. We will, <laughs> our hopes might be dashed. Let's, let's turn from the FHFA to, um, another government initiative, um, and that is the PAVE Appraisal Bias Action Plan. And apparently it has been a year since that was, un, um, you know, rolled out by um, that by HUD, like by the Biden administration tasked HUD with um, having this interagency task force. So tell me about that. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's all there. It's been a full year and they've had a number of meetings. They have 
you know, they, they've been very critical of some of the the stakeholders, the appraisal industry, and I think kind of like the the infrastructure that maintains the the system for appraisals is, I think, questionable at best. And and we we've gone into it quite a bit about the role of some of these groups and um, you know how well they're they're policing themselves and and frankly whether they should be policing themselves at all. I mean, it's kind of an absurdity that you know industry trade groups are, are basically in charge of their own conduct. Um, you know, we we see this in other institutions in America, and it almost never works out well, right? Because People are not incentivized to uh, to punish themselves, as it turns out. Um, but yeah, it's it's been a year, and and I, I think you know, although the the Pave Action Plan is relatively fresh, you know, it came out a few months ago. Um, there are measurables, and we're starting to see in the last few months the federal government, through all of its you know apparatus. Uh, are starting to kind of put their finger on the scale on various appraisal-related issues, especially when it comes to claims of bias. So I think we talked about this a few weeks back, Sarah, but they they signed a letter, uh, a statement of intent to, they're effectively supporting a lawsuit that a, a black couple in Maryland made against Lone Depot and uh, an appraisal service claiming that they effectively um, provided them a lower valuation because they were a black couple. Uh, of, of course, the appraisal company says that is absolutely not true. They had very valid reasons for not um, you know, providing the number that this couple ended up getting appraised at you know, months later. Um, but this case caught a lot of attention and the Department of Justice and the CFPB sent out a release a few weeks ago and said, and this is a really, really significant statement. If you're a lender and there is a case of appraisal bias, we're going to find you liable. And, um, you know, before kind of the firewall had sort of insulated the lender. And and I think in a lot of cases, the lender can very, very clearly state, well, (laughs) like I'm not an appraiser. Like you, you told me I needed to get an appraiser. I got an appraiser. This is what the appraiser says. You know, like what else do you want me to do? Like what other recourse do I have here? Um, And so I I think we're kind of gearing up for a little bit of a fight because the federal government has not really clarified some of these positions and, and whether the lender um, ends up kind of, filing a a big lawsuit against, you know, what maybe then they shouldn't be a part of, you know, the whole equation. If you're going to hold the lender liable for the actions of another party that they're not, you know, able to differentiate. This to me has been one of the biggest questions I've had in this whole process of like figuring out um, where appraisal bias might be happening and then, you know, punishing it uh, rooting it out, which everyone would, you know, want to do is how is it that who, who are you going to hold liable and how is it that they're going to know? And in this, um, statement of interest that the DOJ and CFPB, uh, filed on this case, they said, here's a quote, the law is clear that mortgage lenders cannot take race, sex, or any other prohibited basis into account when evaluating the credit credit worthiness of an applicant. That means lenders can't rely on an appraisal if they knew or should have known that the appraisal was discriminatory. 
End quote. My question is, how are lenders supposed to know that the appraisal was discriminatory? Does this now mean that they have to look at the comps themselves? Do they have to do a secondary um, thing? Like how there's an arm's length, um, you know, relationship with most lenders and appraisers, even if they're in, in the same company, right? Like they don't know that individual appraiser. They're not supposed to. Um, so right. in a lot of cases they go through, you know, a third party that finds the appraiser, you know, they're, they're several arm's lengths away from the actual person who's, who's determining the value. So to say that, you know, they should have known the appraisal was discriminatory is like, I, I just don't understand that. So last week I was in DC for the, um, I was there for the NAREP conference and, you know, I was trying to set up an in-person meeting with the CFPB to clarify this. And the, the writers of this statement, I was like, you know, I'd love to get an interview. And they kind of, I'll just be honest, they kind of strung me along all week. You know, they're like, okay, what time are you, you know, send your questions over and what time are you available on Thursday and all this stuff. And then in the very end, they just sent me a bunch of links to blog posts that they've done over the last like- Oh, blog posts. Yeah, oh, that's blog helpful. posts. And I was like, yeah, I cool. know what you said. I've read what you've said. What we're trying to do for our readers is get clarification because what in the world, if I'm a lender, how do I know that I was supposed to, I should have known that the appraisal was discriminatory and um, they have yet to answer me back. And it really is a huge question now. Like, what does that mean? Right. Or, or is there a best practice? You know, a lot, most of these lenders are going to be doing conventional loans. It, it's totally different. There is a very different standard and process if you're going through FHA, if you're going through VA. I mean, there, there is a very defined, you know, here's what happens if someone, a prospective borrower says that there was discrimination within, you know, the valuation proposal. You can follow those steps. You can you can consult your attorney and they can say, okay, well, you know, here's, here's what happens next. They go to the panel, right? Whatever. If you're doing conventional conforming, that doesn't exist. You, you need to develop an ad hoc, you know, strategy in house. I, I don't, I don't know how um, a lender could be expected to, to know what to do, uh, you know, because then they're, they're faced with the choice of, do we potentially eat money if the appraiser was right in the house really is, you know, valued at 450 when the, the borrowers said it should have been valued at 650 and, and there is a material problem with, the valuation number that they accept. You know, I, I don't know. It's, do they hire a second appraiser at their cost? Uh, which, I mean, maybe that's, maybe that's the right move to make, you know, the, the lender decides they'll take on the cost, you know, let's say it's $700 or whatever it is. And then they, what, then they have like their own in-house person who evaluates like which appraiser did a better job. I, I don't know. Like, you know, they're, the, the point that I'm making is like, there is no answer. There is no rubric. There's no, there's no yellow brick road to follow here. There isn't. And I think that, you know, that was part of what they um, faulted Loan Depot for in the statement of interest where they were like, you know, Loan Depot should have known that it was discriminatory. And then I guess they didn't pay for that second appraisal or they, or um, they went back to the appraisal and the appraiser and he's like, yeah, no, I'm, uh, I think this is good. And I, I think it's not clear within that statement. Did they then expect Loan Depot what would have been the right move there to hire a completely different appraisal appraiser? And, but the whole thing is if they said, you know, Loan Depot knew that it was discriminatory. And in that case, it seemed to, and this is why I have a lot of questions because I'm not a lawyer, but reading through that statement of interest, it sure seemed like what they were like, um, Loan Depot should have known that this was discriminatory because someone filed a lawsuit. Okay. So, uh, 
is every lender off the hook unless someone files a lawsuit? And now does, is that the standard? Like, it's just not clear. Right, and, and I could sue you tomorrow, Sarah, for whatever, you know, that, that doesn't necessarily mean that there's any viable reason that I've been wronged, right? That's right. And so, and the, and the lawsuit hasn't concluded. So at what point is it that Loan Depot should have known it was discriminatory? Again, I don't know if it was or or not. And you and I are both like, the last thing we want is any bias in appraisals. It's, it's really calling into question how you expect this to be enforced by the lender, how you expect that to happen, especially in a time when the cost to originate is through the roof through the roof. It's over $12,000 like we talked about last time. Yeah. And so you're now you're adding uncertainty and saying, you know, we're going to, you have to know this. It's like, but how? It's a challenge because we know that there is bias. It it does happen. We don't know how much there is. You know, we we know that the, uh, the government released a pretty big data dump in the fall and the government absolutely believes that there is a correlation between lower values and, um, you know, the race of, of the borrower or the prospective borrower. So we know what happens. We don't know necessarily what the scale is there. There is research that, that is being conducted, but we're, we're taking a, you know, maybe a shovel when there should be a, a different instrument, you know, maybe not a scalpel because then, you, you know, you can't, you can't solve every problem, you know, individually, every bias complaint, the government can't have its own, you know, like agency to review it necessarily in, in that respect, or maybe they could, you know, I, I don't know, the, I certainly pay a lot in taxes. Sure you do too. So uh, that maybe that's the answer, right? Maybe, maybe the government creates some sort of, uh, you know, an appraisal bias review committee and they individually look at any complaint that, that a borrower makes and then that determines ultimately what the valuation is. I, I, I don't know, but I, I think that we're, we're in a kind of a funny spot in which you want to stamp out appraisal bias. And I think the government's made very clear, very strong messages about the need to do so. And it's a, a very good one. You know, this is a practice that has been going on for way too long. And, and it's about time that the government used its authority to stamp it out. Um, but holding the lender accountable for a practice that they're really, I'd say, kind of lightly involved in is just, it seems really, really, really not wrong. I don't know if wrong is the right word, but it, it seems misplaced. Misplaced or give us really, you know, an outline of what that looks like. Like, here's here's how we would say you should have known. And here, the, here are those things so that, again, it goes back to the whole idea of an of enforcement by a regulation by enforcement where it's like, you're going to, you're not going to know that you did something wrong until they take action against someone. Instead of telling you ahead of time, this is what we expect. It's like, we're going to look and then jump in when we, when we feel like people didn't do what we wanted. Well, that's the complaint you most frequently hear from, you know, the industry trade groups and, and top executives at at these mortgage companies, especially on the servicing side. Right. Um, It's just, well, we didn't know, like, <laughs> you know, there's no, there's no, like, if, if there were like a very clearly delineated law that said, this is the line and, and we cross it, like, fine. Okay. You know, that does happen. I'm, I'm not saying that these are all, you know, choir boys and choir girls who are, you know, without fault or anything like that. Certainly there is, there is definitely some, some bad behavior in the mortgage industry from time to time. We report on it, 
Um, but I, I think this like casual, well, you'll find out when we decide to, you know, put the handcuffs on you is, is, um, a, a really difficult, uh, message for people in the industry to get behind. It's not that they want them or care if they get behind it, but you know, I, I think they'd probably get better results for the consumer if there were a little bit more clarity on, on what is permitted and what is not. You know, and this is what uh, this is why you and your newsroom meet. This is what we do at HousingWire is try try to be you know try to be the ones who go after that information, right? It's like you know, give us the clarity. That's why I was looking for an interview because it's like it's not clear. And as opposed to having you know this lender A, this lender B, and then they're not going to share that with other lenders. It's like this is how you get the information out. You you talk to the press, you know, especially the business press that is asking you about that. So that is my rant on that. Um, yeah, and, and I think just just as another aside here, we know that the CFPB has bulked up its enforcement arm. Uh, they've hired a lot of attorneys. They're very interested in going after companies that they feel have wronged consumers. And I mean, that is their remit, right? That is what they're supposed to do. I don't think we've really seen the full level of um, you know force that that they want to put behind it. Partly because one, we haven't really seen the foreclosures at all, right? I think a lot of the servicers have been very much on their best behavior and they could afford to because they staffed up. Servicing is still a pretty good business right now. It's not as good as it was, you know, like I think we're a little bit past the peak there and we're, but we're going to start to see more problems if, you know, the, the feds break it and kind of buy it model, um, you know, turns bad for some, right? And so the question really is, is the CFPB, the various regulators, going to enforce as they have over the last few years, which is, you know, we're, we're creating a climate of compliance after we, we target, you know, one or two big players, or are they going to be, um, you know, setting very clear rules about what you can do and what you cannot do. And we also have to consider that this is now coming up against the backdrop of a Congress that is Republican and is going to be going after the CFPB, which is, you know, already fighting a constitutional question uh, about its funding structure. And so, you know, I think there are a lot of questions here about enforcement and, and the NBA was very explicit when, when, you know, they were at um, NBA annual in Nashville in the fall that, it's compliance and regulatory issues that are our biggest problem right now. You know, it wasn't even just the fact that origination volume is down. Like at the time it was probably down like 40, 50%, probably a little more now. And, um, you know, that they didn't see a lot of light at the end of the tunnel in terms of interest rates. Um, but even that, you know, is not as big a concern because it's a cyclical industry, but the government is not a cyclical industry. You know, the, the government's ability to make your business more expensive and more difficult to, to operate is not cyclical. Sadly, no, it's not. And I, I think that's a really great point is that the environment in which this is happening is just really unfortunate. You know, if, if you, you know, we all, we all support home ownership and this is great, but if you make it so hard and so expensive in the midst of a very low volume environment, you know, it's, it's just not going to be good for the industry. It's not going to be at the end of the day, good for homeowners, good for potential homeowners, which is what we're all trying to do, right? We've said homeownership is a good in this country. So 
You know, related to that on the appraisal side, on March 1st, uh, Fannie Mae announced that, I mean, a pretty big bombshell that appraisals are no longer the default option. And that definitely plays into this whole appraisal bias thing, right? Because now you have, um, in fact, they, they changed the language from appraisal waiver right to value acceptance. And with that value acceptance, then there's a more standardized way of what they're looking for to be, you know, so now... Um, you don't necessarily have to have an appraisal. You can get this value acceptance, but you do that by, you know, uploading into desktop underwriter. And there are now these standards that they're looking for um, on an appraisal. So I, you know, it is interesting to see them, you know, one side of the government doing that, which is standardizing what an appraisal look like. And, and does that help in the, in the bias conversation? I don't know, because, you know, you're like, you're uploading floor plans and you're uploading, you know, are there more, uh, are there now more, points that they can look at and say, this is how we know it's discrimination. But between the fact that lenders are going to be held liable if there is bias and this, and this, you know, obviously cheaper, quicker, all that. I mean, you really think the appraisal profession as we know it right now is is undergoing a huge change. Threat. A threat. You know, not, yes. not even to change, right? Um, yeah. I, I mean, there are two, I think, really fascinating uh, points to all of this, which is one, we know that the solutions providers in the valuation space have been kind of publicly touting that they're eliminating a lot of this bias that, you know, they, they don't have, you know, people who carry their own histories and their own, you know, unconscious biases in a lot of cases even. Right. And so, you know, by, by turning to the algorithms and by having good data, lots of it, you are eliminating the likelihood that there is going to be some sort of racial or, you know, other, uh, animus that has creeped into, you know, the, the calculation that somebody has made in determining the most valuable asset that you probably own. Um, so there's that. On the other hand, AI has had a lot of issues with, you know, racial, um, facial recognition software is just one, you know, I mean, you, you could go down the list. There are so many areas in which, you know, people have been disadvantaged because the algorithm, you know, was written by people who, you know, look differently and, and, you know, had different experiences and different credit histories and, you know, would, would, you know, benefit in different ways from the algorithm that was created. Right. So it's not, it's not a guarantee that we're going to, you know, eliminate this form of bias because we turn to the, you know, the computers and, uh, you know, it's not, an old white appraiser in some random town in the USA who was accused of, uh, you know, looking at family photos and deciding that they lived in a so-called black neighborhood. And so their house was worth less. Right. I, I mean, one of the persistent pernicious problems about, you know, appraisal bias is just the fact that some of it is just baked in because of redlining. So, you know, your traditional uh, neighborhoods that had a lot of minority homeowners in it, are, have been undervalued for decades. So as long as you're still relying on comps, um, you know, you've got that problem. So how do you, how do you solve for that? Part? And you are in, in any of these models that we're turning to, it's all based on comps, right? It's all based on the historic value over the course of time. And you, you can't eliminate American history from property valuations. So it's, yeah, it's, it's a really, really, really difficult question. The government alone can't solve. 
I agree with that. Well, we are out of time already. That went fast. I, w- I would tell our listeners, um, I write a newsletter aimed at uh, about appraisal issues called Appraised Value once a week on Tuesday. Um, we're also having a virtual event on the appraisal bias topic on April 24th. So check into check out um, housingwire.com for the stories that we write on it. Um, sign up for the newsletter, whatever it is. But James, thank you so much for keeping us up to date. Cool. Thanks for having me, Sarah. Success might look different this year, but it's out there for those willing to work for it. That's why 2023's Gathering of Eagles will focus on forging opportunities, the perfect chance for industry leaders to take a proactive approach to continually move the needle in their businesses and the real estate industry at large. Gathering of Eagles brings together the nation's most elite brokerage, association and team leaders, C-suite leaders, and top producing agents to grow, network, and set the pace for what's next in our industry. 2023's Gathering of Eagles is at the Omni Barton Creek Resort in the rolling hill country of Austin, Texas from June 18th to 21st. Learn more and register your spot today on the events page at realtrends.com. We can't wait to see you in Austin. Thanks for listening to Housing Wire Daily. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to take a minute to rate the show or leave a comment. We'll see you back here on Monday for more news and insight.